Welcome to Asking for a Friend with me, your host, Katrina Buffard. I'm a clinical sexologist, psychotherapist, and sexuality researcher. And this podcast covers any and every topic relating to sex, intimacy, or relationships that you might feel a little too embarrassed to ask about. This season of Asking for a Friend is sponsored by Desire, South Africa's leading sexual health and wellness store. For a lovely little discount, stay tuned until the end of this episode. In my opinion, if there's only one person globally who you would want to talk to and learn from about sexual pain, it is my guest this week. And she is none other than my friend and my mentor, Dr. Elna Rudolph. Elna is a South African sexologist and a medical doctor who's been working in the field of sexual health since 2010. She founded South Africa's leading multidisciplinary team, My Sexual Health, and the training platform, The Sexology Training Club. And she's the president of the Southern African Sexual Health Association and has just been appointed as the new president of the World Association of Sexual Health. This is a huge deal in the field. She is loved and hugely respected by anyone who meets her and goes above and beyond not only for her patients and her colleagues, but to advance the field of sexual health in a direction of inclusivity, sexual justice, and sexual rights for all. And in this episode, what Elna and I are doing is we're really unpacking what one can expect from an appointment if you are struggling with sexual pain. Hi, Elna. It's so great to chat to you today. Thanks, Katrina. It's great to be here with you. So you and I have known each other for many, many years. You, you were kind of um, pivotal to me getting into this field. And I think you are probably the reason why I have such a passion for working with sexual pain. Um, you know, I work extensively with, with women who experience all types of sexual pain. And very often when they, they're coming to see me, there's a lot of fear and anxiety around the the physical examination mm. the process of actually meeting somebody having that examination exploring the the physiological causes of the pain and so i'd really like to delve into it with you today about what actually happens when a patient comes to see you for this kind of concern sure you know i think one of the biggest reasons why people are so worried about going is because they've actually been before and they were told that there's nothing wrong with them it's all in their heads they might have been seen by sexual health providers that um, actually don't really know what they're doing and they would they told the patients that um they just have to relax you know that's so easy to say oh just relax um and that has then they expect it to be the same and they expect it to be like a typical gynae kind of visit where they'll be in stirrups and you know I'll expect them to already be undressed and then I'll walk into the room with my clipboard and start asking them questions about their genitals and it really isn't like that because we've treated thousands of women with sexual pain literally thousands you want to be treated with dignity and you want to know that you can say no at any point and that we can stop at any point. For most women, they feel a lot of relief 
after the first appointment with myself or, or often with you because they've built it up so much in their head that the, the idea in their head is worse than what it is actually like in reality. Yes. And as you say, I think so many of, of the patients that we're seeing have seen multiple healthcare professionals. I mean, sometimes multiple gynecologists who've wanted to operate and who've told them that, you know, you're just going to have to live with it or there's, it's all in your head. Yeah. And for these women, it gets worse and worse and worse each time they have an experience like that. And then, then they have to now go to see somebody to have the physical examination after how many times it's been traumatic. Yes. So the reluctance to come and have another physical examination is built up to such an intense level of fear that often I think that women will choose just to avoid, you know, will choose yes. to not uh, approach things. So, you know, one of the things that I'll always say to my clients is that knowing what to expect helps to decrease the level of anxiety because yes. the more uncertainty that we have, the higher the level of anxiety. So maybe we can chat a little bit about the sort of questions that you would be asking, you know, before you've even gone into the examination room, what sort of questions can these patients expect to, to be asked by you? When you come into my room, you can expect a more of a lounge kind of environment. We changed it recently because of COVID. So now um, I, mean, I can't sterilize my couch. So, and actually at the moment I'm doing most of my work online. So um, the environment is pretty much this and what you have at your house. But my idea is to have a lounge kind of environment. And then what I'll tell you is tell me your story. What brings you here today? So I know from your questionnaire that sexual pain is one of your problems. But the interesting thing is that um, people might mark sexual pain. And because I'm passionate about sexual pain, I want to zone in on that at the first consultation. But they might be here because they are terrified of having an STI or because of their low libido or whatever it is. So I just give them an opportunity to tell me their story. And what you might find when you see other healthcare providers is that they will want to do a traditional sexual health history on you. And I actually advise our team not to do that at all. Um, because, you know, whether you had sex with somebody that lives in a different country is really not relevant when it comes to sexual pain in most cases unless your sexual pain is due to something like herpes, for instance, and we worry that you might have other STIs as well. So it's a good way of interviewing to just give a person uh, time to talk freely. And once I've got on the table what your real concern is, I'll start to delve deeper. So what I need to know is whether you have deep or superficial pain. Because for deep pain, we have to go and exclude gynecological disorders. So possible for you to, to have an internal examination, I would first go to a gynecologist. Deep sexual pain needs to be evaluated by a gynecologist. But what we also often see is um, you don't even know if you have deep pain because it's so painful, superficial, that by the time that, that uh, he goes deep, uh, everything is sore anyway. Then we start by sorting out the superficial pain. So only deep pain and penetration is possible, go for a gynecological examination. Otherwise, come to us and then we will start talking about the, um, the superficial pain. So the questions that I will ask, if, if it didn't come up in your the story that you told me, is 
whether you've been able to consummate your relationship, actually. Uh, we see lots of unconsummated relationships where penetration has never been possible. And then we see relationships where people can actually have um, penetration, but it's just very painful. So I'll get an idea of what's happening there at the moment. And um, I want to know whether they've been able to have sex with another partner in the past, because also there's a difference between somebody that has enjoyed sex, had a good sex life before, and something changed versus that person who's never experienced any pleasure related to sex, have never been um, able to penetrate. Or you get those people who uh, can experience fantastic sexual pleasure, but they just can't penetrate. I'll ask questions pertinent to vaginismus, actually. And vaginismus will be closing the knees when you try and penetrate. I just need to gather a lot of information about you before I start talking to you. Because if I sit there with a the clipboard and I have to just go and um, complete all of these questions, and th then I never get to your story. And it's so important for me to get to your story, to really get to the bottom of what's going on. So I let you complete that questionnaire in your own time. So I'll read through that before I see you. Then when you come into my office, you know, there's no dildos hanging from the roof and stuff like that. It's a very typical medical kind of office. And um, I've got a lounge in my office and um, I want you to feel as comfortable as possible. So we make a point out of, you know, it being private uh, that other people won't hear your story because we realize that this is your most intimate story and that for many people, it's very embarrassing. Many people have never spoken about it. So we want to make you feel comfortable. And then when you ready and it comes to that point we'll go over into another room and go and do the examination there everybody won't have a separate examination room but they should at least leave the room when you get undressed yeah. now i'm a woman myself i know what it feels like to stand there and getting undressed when another person is watching you even if they're going to see your genitals it just patient dignity involves just giving you enough privacy i'll tell you i want you to sit on the edge of the bed with your feet on the stool there's no stirrups or anything threatening um and then i'll tell you to tell me when you're ready so you can take a few breaths and i'll come in and and do the examination then and there's absolutely no reason for you to have a pap smear when you've got sexual pain. Just as an, a, a first um, introductory examination, there's no reason for a pap smear. Yes, of course, if you haven't had your pap smear, you need one and we'll work towards that. So what we will typically do um, will be a very limited examination. And at any point, you have the opportunity to say, this is enough, um, you don't want me to continue. And that's a diagnosis in itself. It's great for vaginismus if I cannot complete a full examination and that's fine then my diagnosis is made and yes of course I'd like to have more information about your nerves and your muscles and um, signs of infection or anything else but uh, usually um, it doesn't matter we can you can come back in a, a few weeks when you've had some treatment and then we can try again something that was really interesting that i was picking up on is how how much compassion is present in that first initial um appointment with you and that's often what our our patients have lacked in a lot of the appointments that they've had you know so many of our patients have been to multiple healthcare professionals who've recommended everything from surgery to it's all in your head just get over it and just have sex push through grit and bear it which 
causes me as a therapist a lot of frustration and anxiety. But, you know, one of the things that I work with with my clients is trying to work with the uncertainty they have around coming to see you in that first appointment. And so giving them some idea of the questions that you might ask would really help to perhaps lower someone who's listening or lower their anxiety around it. So what sort of questions would you be asking your patient in that initial consultation? When they sit down on my couch, I'll just ask them to tell me their story. And that will give them opportunity to share whatever it is that they want, you know, because I might be very interested in the fact that they write there that there's sexual pain from the intake questionnaire, but that not, might not be the reason why they are there. They might be there because they're worried about an STI or because they're worried about their low libido. So I'll just first let them share their story and determine that they do want to address the pain. If there's significant pain, but they're actually there for low libido, I will really encourage them that we first sort out the pain. Um, obviously, be aware of the libido and, and uh, work with that as well but to get a woman who has terrible pain during intercourse to all of a sudden develop a libido is um you know i just think it's it's cruel so um from a psychological perspective you guys will be dealing with that alongside with what we do physically but i won't be giving her testosterone to now give her a high sex drive but we haven't dealt with the pain so i'll first just let you talk freely and then I would like to know whether your pain is deep or superficial. If you have to choose who to see and you don't have any superficial pain, sex is just painful deep inside, please just go straight to the gynae first, have that cleared. And then people who are interested in sexual pain are typically experts in superficial sexual pain. And, and many women have both. So if it's so sore superficially, then it will also be sore deep inside often. Um, I must say, like in Joburg, most of the patients that I've seen have had gynecological examinations. You know, they know that everything on the inside is fine. They are worried about the fact that they are being told that everything is fine, but they are clearly not fine. So first, just tell me about the pain itself then. I want to know, I want to know whether it's painful right at the entrance. Does it only get painful at the entrance after a while? Does it burn after six? How long does it burn? Five minutes? five hours, five days in some cases. Uh, so I get to the nitty-gritty of the pain. Is the pain only associated with penetration or is the pain actually sometimes just there randomly? If there's random pain, we'll talk about the intensity of the pain. What was the best uh, in the last two weeks? When was it at its best? What would that be out of 10? What would it be out of 10 when it's at its worst? You know, so I really go into understanding what the pain is like. Then I want to know about how sex is for you. Uh, so whether you have consummated, we see so many patients who haven't been able to consummate their relationships. We see patients who are having sex four times a week with a 10 out of 10 pain as well. So it really depends on what's happening in your situation. I didn't make assumptions about what's going on there. I, I ask those questions because when we do the treatment plan, we prefer that you don't have any sex. So going from, oh, don't worry, I've never had sex anyway, or oh, we're having sex four times a week, so we'll be having to manage that partner more um, uh, you know carefully in that case so I get that information then I want to know about whether you're closing your knees when you try and have sex because that's quite a good indication of vaginismus you know you you want to have the sex but your body just automatically closes and um, 
after that, you know, some of this information comes out in what you tell me anyway, and some of this I will have to go and ask for. And after that, I will then go and look for risk factors as to why do you have the sexual pain. You mentioned the partner there, which is, I think, an area of treating sexual pain that is very often um, forgotten or sidelined. And what I regularly see is kind of different types of partners, but I would say that the majority of the time there's distinctly two types of partners. The one type of partner who's very gentle, quite passive, never wants to force the woman, never wants to ever make her feel pressured or in pain at all. But then the other type, which kind of says just push through, like, come on, you know, we, we need yeah. to have sex. We're not having enough sex. Yeah. And that's where you see the four times a week, but it's 10 out of 10 pain. Yes. Um, for me, obviously, as a therapist, I can work with the couple to help understand that that dynamic, well, to help understand what's happening through that dynamic and how that's exacerbating the pain as well as the lower desire. Mm. But I wonder from your side how the partner is included in the process that you take. Look, I love it when the partner is there for the consultation. I love it because that was, that's already a sign of them being supportive. Sometimes you kind of get the idea that they're dragging um, the women in there by the collar. So then um, that's not so ideal. But um, if they're there, I work with them and I make sure that they understand that they are part of this team. And that, you know, it's very important that they are on board. And they're often a bit between the ro a rock and a hard place because they can't be too pushy, but they cannot be uninvolved. So um, it's, it's not that easy for them to figure out exactly where they belong. Because, for instance, if we go over to dilating, he can't ask her three times a day, have you dilated, have you dilated, have you dilated. But he can also not let three weeks go past and without checking in with her to see how's the dilating been going, are you okay, you know, can I maybe make you a hot water bottle before you go dilating, that would be nice. So we want that middle partner who isn't um, just like disinterested and who's also not over pushy. That, that partner that's just supportive is fantastic. And I mean, that's what we want for relationships in general. So they're learning a good skill while they're with you to, to be a supportive partner in general. If the partner isn't there, you know, I'm not a therapist, so I can be frank. I'll tell the woman, listen, you are my priority. I'm here to help you. Especially if I can hear that the partner is being pushy, that that partner wants them to get fixed and they will also ask me, you know, how long is this going to take? Like by the weekend we'll be able to have sex. Oh, you've had, you've never been able to penetrate in seven years and now you want to have pain-free sex by the weekend? No. So tell him no. Tell him I said no. That, you know, I'll be pretty assertive like that. And um, because what I'll tell her is that you are my priority. So I'll help you to be able to have pain-free sex. And, and then if that saves your relationship, that is also in your interest. And that's wonderful. I'd love to help you with that. But, you know, if your relationship's already on the rocks and um, it doesn't survive, I still want you to be able to have pain-free sex. So um, it depends on, you know, where we start at. But then always I will still encourage the partner to come to the next visit because, when I have him there in front of me and I can explain to him, 
exactly what's happening. I can tell him those medical terms in my own words so that he has a better understanding or so that he has less anxiety or so that he can see a future or whatever it is that, that he needs, you know. So, you know, we practice on our intuition a lot. I try and figure out what it is that he also needs to be that supportive partner so that we can get her to a place where she can actually experience pain-free sex. And we actually also encourage them to go to the physio. So just like we encourage them to go and see you, we encourage them to go with to the physiotherapist because they learn a lot, you know, and knowledge is power. When you know more about a topic, you, you just feel less overwhelmed by it. Um, we really encourage partner involvement, absolutely. It's, I think, one of the most important parts of the process for, for any woman who's experiencing pain that is in a relationship because if the partner is left out, what I've often found is that the woman feels very isolated and feeling that it, the pressure is all on her to now fix this mm. and to resolve the issue. And as you said, knowledge is power. When I'm working with a couple and I'm able to educate them both about what sex you know, can look like, not what it should look like. And as well as also helping the woman sometimes to understand that he, he doesn't just want to be with you for sex. And when he's reaching for you sexually, that's perhaps his way of trying to connect with you. Mm. And there need to be other ways to connect because as you'll know, for a woman who has a lower desire, who has sexual pain, they also withdraw from affection because yes. they don't want to get their partner to, misinterpret the, the sign that maybe they want to be sexual because that's not what they want at all. Absolutely. Because sex causes so much yes, pain. Yes, yes. So helping that woman and that partner to understand that there needs to be closeness outside of sex and everything, but the partner is crucial in the process of dilation, treatment, and so on. Yes. So absolutely pivotal. And I think something that is so interesting that I often find is that people will come to see us and think that as sexologists, we're going to make them swing from the chandeliers. And as you said, we have dildos hanging in our office. It's the last thing. It's the absolute last thing that we're going to do. You know, the number one thing that we do is ban sex and say, look, we don't want you to be having sex right now until we've worked through unlearned, rewired everything that we want you to do. I know I cannot do this kind of work without someone like you, without the amazing pelvic floor physiotherapists that are out there. And I wonder from your experience what it's been like working in a multidisciplinary team and why it's so important in treating women with sexual pain to have that at your disposal. Look, my experience with the multidisciplinary team happened at the Portsmouth Clinic in the UK, where I was, I went there under Kevin Wiley, and you know the Portsmouth Clinic, it's just, it's beautiful. And I saw there, they had about 45 people working together, lots of transgender patients there, but that's where I saw that you need a multidisciplinary team to manage this. I mean, really, I can't do it without my team. It's impossible to treat sexual pain without the rest of the team, impossible. That's why I, as a doctor, can now actually treat the patient with sexual pain online because I trust the physiotherapists that have trained with us so much that I know that if she tells me this is the diagnosis, um, I'll trust her much more than, than a gynecologist who does not have 
experience in this. Obviously, if the person has deep pain, I would say no, stay away from the uh, physio first, just let the gynae sort out uh, the possible causes of that. So um, we also definitely can't do this without gynecologists, urologists, and neurologists, all kinds of interesting uh, specialists that sometimes come on board, but our core team is the psychologists, the physiotherapists, and then us as doctors with a special interest in sexual pain. So you, you've just mentioned that obviously the physios are, you're working online now, you know, the physios are doing the, the kind of physical work for you. But if you're doing an examination on the patient, so if you're able to do that in, say, the first session, or maybe it's the second session, what, what does that look like? What, what can a patient expect from that examination? By the time that we've had a discussion and, and they can see that I get them that I don't think they're lying, that they, I don't think that it's in their heads, that I believe them, that I've seen thousands of women in their position. Um, they kind of want me to examine them because they want, they're so desperate to walk out of there with a proper diagnosis. And I can often make the diagnosis on just these three alone, but obviously I would prefer to do the examination. So when we go through to, to the examination room, I'll give them the privacy to undress and I'll tell them to sit on the edge of the bed with their feet on the stool, have something covering them. They usually don't have to take off at the top. And then I'll tell them to let me know when they're ready and I'll, I'll go in then. And then I'll ask them to lie back and to put their feet onto the bed. So they don't put it into stirrups, they just put it onto the bed. And you know, a woman with vaginismus keeps her feet together when she puts it on the bed. Women without vaginismus knows where I'm heading. They keep their legs open. It's just, it's, it's so easy to tell the difference. Then what I'll do is, I'll explain this to her beforehand, but what I'll do is I'll just look and see if everything looks normal, which it usually does. And then I'll open between the labia, but I'll look what I can see there, you know, any signs of infection, any discharge, redness, then so I will want to add the labia being the labia majora, which is the bigger lips on the outside, the bigger fatty lips, and the labia minora, which are the thinner, kind of um, much more um, delicate lips on the inside of the, yes. of the vulva. Yes, and interestingly, women with sexual pain often have minuscule, very, very small inner lips. It is an interesting association that we still have to study, but... Um, Often we see that those inner lips are very, very small, maybe because they've been on a kind of pill that was one of the risk factors to have sexual pain um, that could make their, their labia minora, their inner lips shrink, actually. Um, some were born like that. So then when I've got it open like that, I'm interested in the vestibule. Now, the vestibule is the flat area between the lips. And you've got the clitoris at the top, and then you've got this flat surface where the urethra, the opening of the of the bladder, opens up there above the vaginal opening, and then you've got the vaginal opening. So what I then would like to do is I take an earbud, and I would touch, I would wet it a little bit with the loop that I use for my examination, and then I would touch your inner leg with that, and I'll ask you if it hurts, and usually it doesn't, unless you have a nerve problem there, and then I'll go and I'll touch on your labia majora, on the big lips, I'll touch the small lips, and usually none of those hurt until I actually get to the vestibule. And when I touch that vestibule, it feels to you like I'm trying to poke my finger into your eye. 
soft, like as gentle as I possibly can, um, because I'm looking for something called allodynia, which is a painful sensation to a non-painful stimulation. So I'm not trying to hurt you, I trust you very gently. And then uh, it, you can see that the patient flinches and, and they'll tell you that it hurts. So when I touch you on the other areas, I ask you to just say no, 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 if it doesn't hurt, and then yes, if it does. So usually when I then get to the vestibule, they will say yes, and then I'll say, if 10 is like a brick that falls on your toe and zero is no pain, what would you say? What is this? And you get eight. I mean, you get 12 sometimes out of 10 for touching this sensitive area around your vagina with an earbud. And then I will remember the values. And then I will tell you, if it's okay with you, I'm gently going to try and insert one finger into your vagina. And then that is what I do. I'll just touch the vaginal opening like that, just softly, and then try and see if I can insert my finger. If I can't, I can't. You've got muscle spasm, done. Diagnosis, done, you know. If I can, I'll try and go inside. Because what I explain to patients is your pelvis is basically like your face. The bony elements determine the outer boundaries and then there's muscle that should be pretty relaxed and there's an opening that's actually closed but if you try and insert something it goes in easily. Women with vaginismus all of these muscles are in spasm. It's usually not only the ones around the opening. So the opening is tightly, it's closed very tightly um, but then when I, if I can get through the opening, I want to assess, are these muscles normal or are they also in spasm? And they usually are or often are. Mm -hmm. Then um, that's it. Diagnosis made. If I can, I'll try and see if your bladder is also sensitive, especially if you told me that you've got bladder um, problems. If you, I'll, I'll check if you're, maybe I'll, sometimes I can feel that you're severely constipated, which is something that often goes with sexual pain. Um, you know, so I'll try and gather a little bit more information. If the one finger is easy, I might go for two. If I can insert two fingers, I can insert a speculum. And if you're then comfortable with it, I would go and insert a speculum. I've got a fancy speculum that actually has its light inside the speculum. So I can, with opening it very, very gently, I can already see very well. You know, I don't have to get my head in front of the light and like a, a, a typical kind of examination the way we were taught at school. So I, I will look if I can and obviously take a pop smear if I can, if you haven't had one and take samples if it's necessary um, for if I suspect that you have an infection or something like that. But remember, you might see a, a doctor who does not have all of this equipment, but still has the knowledge to make a diagnosis. You don't need an internal ultrasound or all of that to make a diagnosis for your superficial sexual pain. Um, so yes, that is, that's that. And then I'll often ask patients if, if there's something else that bothers them that they want me to just check out. You know, sometimes I'll sell me to look into their ear and I'm like, oh, no, I'd rather not look into your ear, but you know, I'm a doctor, so I'll address other associated medical issues as well. And when the examination is over, I go and open up my book and I and I'll tell them, this is what I found. This is this is normal, this is what you look like. Your lips are very small, which is already predisposing you to sexual pain. I can see how there's no hormones, it's very light colored or 
whatever I find, I'll, I'll explain it to them and show them the actual pictures of the skin, the nerves, the muscle. And that's why it's great when the partner's also there that, so that they can see where the actual pathology lies. But then obviously we'll always send an information pamphlet afterwards with an explanation of the condition. And it's very simple. It's just, it is literally just an explanation of what is wrong. Um, yeah, so that's what we do for the examination. You know, while, you, while you've been explaining that, I'm just kind of trying to sit in the seat of somebody who, who may be listening who does have sexual pain. And I imagine that if, if a woman is listening to this and hearing you describe that examination and is already feeling anxious hearing that, reach out to us. Like, please, that already, <laughs> yes. tells, us, already mm. tells us that, that this is something that we can help you with. And, you know, one of the things that I have found in my career so far in the last decade, and, and I know you too, is that actually this is something that is not easy to treat. But of all the sexual difficulties that people come to us about, this is the one that we like, yes, fine. Generally the most resolvable, Absolutely. so to speak. Mm. And no woman should be in pain when they are having sex. Pain is not normal when you have sex unless you choose to have pain. And that's a whole different episode and discussion <laughs> that we can have. But it is not normal to have pain. And of course, I think it's important for us to say that the, the most common reason women experience pain during sex is because they're not sufficiently aroused. But that is not going to be happening each and every single time, perhaps, you know, we are experiencing different levels of arousal at different times of the day or night or week or month. But if you are experiencing consistent pain, if you are identifying anything within yourself that, you know, Alna has just been describing, there's something there that doesn't have to be there. There's something happening that doesn't have to happen that we can work on. Now, obviously, you and I have slightly different ways of treating um, somebody who's experiencing sexual pain. And, and I'll spend some time going into that later. But could you just give us a, a brief overview of the treatment process from your side as the doctor? So for me, the most important thing is to make a proper diagnosis. So that's what I'm trying to get to with taking this thorough history and doing a thorough examination is to the why. And then when you have a diagnosis like primary provoked vestibular denia, meaning just basically sex has always been painful. It's provoked. Luckily, it's not painful all the time. It's only provoked when you try and have penetration. Vestibule, which is that area that I explained, odinia, meaning pain. So that basically just means you saw around the vaginal opening when, when you try and penetrate, whether it's with a tampon or with a penis or whatever it is. My diagnosis is sometimes this long because it might be the pill. It might be a genetic type. Your mom might also have had pain during sex. You might have a sensitive belly button that tells me that you probably have too many nerve endings in that area. Um, so those will all actually go on to my diagnosis. You might have sensory processing difficulties where you don't like to be touched, you like tactile defensive, that will go on to the diagnosis. You might have vaginismus, which means that you have a psychological reaction to an attempt at penetration. Sex is sore, but you're also afraid of it. Um, and anxiety that's not properly treated or whatever. So I'll list all of those things so that I can go and make a plan for each one of those things. The plans would be the following. 
Usually it involves a cream that contains a few different kinds of hormones and medicines according to your diagnosis that I want you to go and use twice a day, rub it into that vestibule. Then I will often also prescribe a muscle relaxant, a very potent muscle relaxant so that you your muscles relax and you can... Um, Basically, there's a muscle memory that says this, usually, what I find on the examination, and then I will um, refer you to the physiotherapist, but if you are on this muscle relaxation, the work that the physio does for you just is sustained because the muscles don't that easily go back into spasm again. I find it very valuable. And I will probably give you a tablet to prevent thrush because we're changing your hormones. We change, we're working with lubes, with the physio, with the dilates, everything in there. So you'll probably go on that. And I'll probably give you an anti-anxiety tablet that you can take before you go to the physio, before you start dilating at home. Not everybody gets it, but um, the thing is, our patients are usually in their fight and flight response when they try and put something in there. And what we now want to do is get them out of their fight and flight response and make them feel safe. So I chemically help you to not go into fight and flight. Then you can, with all the techniques that you learn through psychotherapy and the breathing that you, the physio also teaches you, make sure that you stay calm and then you have a positive experience you didn't go through another dilating and um exercise and another one another one traumatizing yourself again and again and then obviously you learn that technique without having to use the chemical it's not necessary for everybody and then the physio very important that the physio then gets on board and you know we can do like talk for hours about um, the physios and what people can expect there. But all that I can tell you is you'll find it empowering. I know what it feels like. I've been, it sounds crazy intimidating, but it is actually beautiful and empowering and, and such a lovely experience in the end. And then the vaginal dilators will use to um, get you to a place where you can physically and psychologically accommodate penetration Usually we'll want you to go slightly bigger than what your partner is, which will be a size five, and we even go up to a size eight dilator, but most men are between a size four and five. The physio, if you're seeing a physio on our team, they know exactly what you need. You know, So I'll often tell patients, especially if I've consulted them online, I'll tell them, don't buy, first go and see the physio, have your first one or two sessions. The physio will tell you where you need to start. And then if there's any other medical stuff that I need to address on that list of mine. I'll add those medicines. And then I'll always see patients about four weeks later. And don't expect they're not allowed to have sex then during those four weeks. They can do their sensitive focus. They Some can't do anything um, because the relationship is really in, in too much trouble. But most I will encourage to be intimate, to have pleasure, but not to try and penetrate. And then we'll build up to penetration eventually. So it's interesting because I'm wondering what your experience of this is, because obviously there's so much we can access and use as a treatment option to help a woman who's experiencing sexual pain. And you touched on it briefly that, you know, some women just go for it and, you know, get right into it and it's done. But sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll see that and one month 
the sexual pain is resolved and they're able to start, you know, perhaps with me and the work that we're doing, moving on to, to now experiencing sexual pleasure and working towards um, a different kind of sexual experience from obviously one that they've never had before. But what would you say to those patients who it takes really long for, and perhaps they're really avoidant of the treatment process. What advice would you give to anybody listening that is incredibly scared to engage with the treatment process, perhaps to do the dilation on their, on their own at home when they're not with the physio, or only comes to see you and sees improvement when they're seeing you, but then they go home and they avoid it for the rest of the time. What would be your advice to those sorts of patients? My advice to patients is always to hit it hard, actually. Um, it's probably a part of my yeah. personality, and it is, you know, as a control freak, I like to have all the boxes ticked. Um, I, I encourage people to do everything at the same time, and often, if they've got financial constraints, I'll tell them, rather beg, borrow, steal, whatever, need, do what you need to do to get the money together to be able to do all of this at once. Don't say, um, I'll go to the physio, but I won't buy the cream. I'll buy the cream, but I'm not going to dilate. I, I really advise you against that because that's usually when I see that people get despondent. They choose a small part of the advice that we give them. They don't stick to the whole program and then they don't progress. Because I can tell you that when I see a woman that I cannot even insert an earbud when I examine her the first time. That is often the case, that she's never inserted anything in there. Nobody's ever inserted anything. And um, then usually, almost all the time, I can help that woman in that first session to at least insert an earbud in there. And when she's been able to do it, then I'm usually also able to do it. Sometimes I'm not. Sometimes we can't even get past the knees, you know. But even those women, after four physio sessions, if you look at the research from our clinic, they are on between the number four and the number five dilator, which is like, it's, it's massive. You know, if I look at that thing, I'm like, ah. So um, the, it's, it is amazing how well people progress if they actually do everything together. So sometimes women will decline psychotherapy. And then when I see them in four weeks, they still haven't been able to insert the dilators. Then I'm like, you know, it's clear, you'll need the therapy. So I'll, I'll add things um, or, or encourage them to then add whatever they've left out. And again, reiterate that the reason why you haven't been um, getting better from the ointments and the whatever the other doctors have been prescribing you is because this thing wasn't addressed holistically. And we need to look at every single aspect of it at the same time in order for you to really get better holistically. So um, that would be my advice to just, you know, and don't try and do it while you're writing an exam or, um, you know, well, I guess there's always excuses why now isn't a good time. Make sure that you have the mental capacity. And that's what I love to actually just put book people off work and let them have all four of their physio sessions in one week often so that they can just go home and do self-care after that physio session and um, not have to focus on 10 other things while they're doing uh, this treatment. But I mean, it is also something like most of our patients obviously have to fit it into a very busy life and they still get better. 
with your answer you know and i think it's the same with me i i say to every single new client that i meet that you know i'm going to be seeing you generally once a week for about 50 minutes that's not a lot of time and the the most work the hardest work is going to happen in between our sessions or in between you know consultations with you or the physio that is where you are going to have to put in the most yep. work you could come and see myself or you or a physio three times in a week, you know, each and go home and do nothing and get nowhere. So every single person in this woman's treatment, including her, is part of the team and yes. plays a pivotal role in resolving the experience that she's having sexually. I would actually just like to list a few risk factors that I see sure. for women with sexual pain. Um, because I think it is important to know that it's perfectly normal if you have these things in your life to then go on and experience sexual pain. So I'll, I'll, I'll just list them. If your belly button is sensitive, sex is often painful. And if you go onto the pill with a sensitive belly button, you're much more likely to develop painful sex. If you can't use a tampon, if you're not sexually active yet and you can't use a tampon, please come and see us because you're not going to get a penis in there if you're going to get a tampon in there. Very unlikely. There's always something physical contributing to the pain. Even if you had been raped, even if you came from the most conservative background, which are risk factors. Sexual abuse is a risk factor. Physical abuse is a risk factor. And a strict religious upbringing is, in our clinic, the biggest risk factor, actually. Um, and I respect that. I mean, I come from a strict religious upbringing myself. We've got so many religious clients. And it doesn't mean we can't help you and, and treat you just because of your background. And if you still are very religious absolutely no problem we work with all of that but it is a risk factor for the um for developing sexual pain actually and then things that people do like crossfit pilates years of ballet years of cycling years of um horse riding things where you have to like engage your core and um th those can all cause sexual pain so if you recently started pilates and now sex is sore that might be the reason and of course things around childbearing um during pregnancy after pregnancy and might say sore for more than a year after pregnancy that's certainly abnormal we can deal with that and um people who have recurrent infections so there are these things that you might not think are directly related but are actually in um, for us it's it's very much directly related and then I'll just end up with the biggest cause for sexual pain in my experience in South Africa is the pill by far the mm. pill absolutely um, especially the better the pill is for your skin the worse it is for sex and and um, for causing sexual pain and these fancy newer pills with less estrogen which is good in terms of blood clots they are worse in terms of causing sexual pain and then um, also menopause of course all of those things are risk factors and if that's you we can certainly address that and, and help you so Alna, if there was only one thing you could tell people about sexual pain for the rest of your life, what would it be? Ooh, interesting question. Um, that it's treatable, actually. That there's a real diagnosis for every single patient. There is a real diagnosis. Um, because when I was at medical school, I was told that, that 
gee, these patients are so difficult to treat because it's mainly, mainly in their heads. And um, it's not. It is, it, it is psychological, of course. It, um, having painful intercourse for years, not being able to experience pleasure during sex, all those things have a massive psychological impact, uh, regardless of the possible sexual trauma that they might be. So I'm not saying it's not psychological. It, it very much is. But there is a diagnosis and there's a treatment. And I love it. I love it. That's why I love treating sexual pain because we can actually really make it better. And that's why I love working with you because you feel the same way that I feel. So, yeah. so thanks. Anna. I think that's been an incredibly invaluable discussion that we've had today. You and I, Katrina, know what it was like to have to go overseas to go and learn about sexual health. Everything we learned yeah. about sexual health, we had to get on a plane spend so much money and time overseas to go and gain that knowledge and now with COVID everything is online and we now have so many experts in South Africa that we can learn from and because we're taking things online it's easy to access them you know you had to come and sit in my practice for a week to come and um, learn things from me and we don't have to do it that way anymore we can actually now um, learn so much faster and help so many more people yeah so i think that's the most phenomenal thing because it means that whether you're whether you're somebody who experiences sexual pain or you're a healthcare professional who wants to know more about sexual pain now there is no reason not to have access to to treatment, to knowledge, to learning. Awesome, Anna. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you enjoyed this episode, why not subscribe to this podcast and continue learning about some incredible and fascinating topics that we need to know more and talk more about. You can subscribe and follow this podcast on your favorite platform. And if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd be so grateful if you would rate and review it. This episode was sponsored by Desir. Desir believes that sexual health is not just about the latest sex toy, but about using products to improve one's overall sexual health and well-being. For 15% off, use the code FOREFRIEND.